The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. And by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 24th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. French President Francois Hollande was at the White House today in a show of unity with Barack Obama and the United States. In an odd turn, it's the French who are urging Americans onto a more expansive war in the Middle East. There is no real tension, though, between the two historic allies. President Obama offered his condolences and his encouragement. Hollande demonstrated Gallic resolve. So together with President Obama, today, we wanted, on the occasion of that meeting, first of all, to share our determination, relentless determination to fight terrorism everywhere and anywhere. On September 12, 2001, the venerable French newspaper Le Monde ran the headline, We Are All Americans. It was one of those statements bound to be repeated, not only because it had great impact in the moment, wow, but because years later it could be held up as testament to how much the subsequent missteps of the Bush administration had frayed the sympathy and the goodwill that the world was extending to the U.S. Some of that goodwill was bound to dissipate. Right after a tragedy, your neighbor is going to be sympathetic, but in the weeks and months to follow, your neighbor will surely get past her sympathy faster than you will overcome your loss. But some of that goodwill was frittered away by a war that the French didn't sign on to. It is interesting to note, however, how the goodwill of the French and American people towards their own leaders changed in the days after 9-11 and these latest French attacks. Remember George W. Bush? Remember he won election, not with the popular vote, and his job approval in September pretty much reflected that. The Gallup poll conducted between September 7th and 10th of 2001 showed George Bush had 51% approval rating, 39% disapproval. The next poll the one right after the attacks on September 11th, saw his approval rise to 86%. And within a couple of weeks, he would set the record since the Gallup polls been asking the question in 1945, he had a 90% approval rating. Let's contrast that with Francois Hollande. Elected four years ago, for much of the last year, Hollande's approval rating hovered at or below 20%. At one point last year, Newsweek reported that Hollande had an approval rating of 18%, and Newsweek contrasted that with an organization whose approval rating in France was 16%. That organization was ISIS. So Francois Hollande was almost as popular as ISIS. That was before the Charlie Hebdo attacks of 10 months ago. Afterwards, Hollande's approval almost doubled, but they've since begun to sink. Now, after these latest Paris attacks, his approval ratings rose, but only to 33% where it currently sits. Hollande is just remarkably unpopular. In fact, he has fewer Twitter followers than Trump. Not Donald Trump, Ivanka Trump. Of course Hollande's going to benefit a little from the rally round the flag effect, but this helps a lot less in France than it does in the United States. You could look at the Bush numbers and the Hollande numbers and say both leaders pretty much doubled in popularity after their respective attacks. But in absolute terms, Hollande has never come close to getting more of his countrymen to say, I approve than I disapprove. Some of this is a function of the parliamentary system. You know, multi-parties offer different choices. And some of it's 
a reflection of Hollande's poor handling of the economy. But I would also submit that the French are simply inherently less militaristic than the Americans. Or maybe they're more protective of their liberté to the point where these concerns lessen their fraternité. On the show today, I will spiel about the spooky, spooky specter of the aforementioned Donald Trump. But first, Maria Konnikova sheds light on standing desks and answers the question everyone wants to know, do they cause or do they cure pleurisy? I am being told no one wants to know the answer to that question. Doesn't matter. I'm going there. I use Harry's razors. I use Harry's razors for a couple of reasons. Number one, good razors. Shave my face. Hair in my face. Seriously abated as a result of the Harry's razors. 1A, no blood. No blood is involved. Every once in a while this happens. Not with a Harry's razor. No, this has been my experience so far. Two, huge one, the cost. I mean, when did shaving get so expensive? These other razor companies, I think you know the kind I'm talking about. They thought at one point that they had you so they could exploit you and sell you razors where the blades are, you know, five, six, seven bucks if you do the math. That's crazy. And Harry's knows it's crazy. Harry's was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men. It delivers a great shave. As I said, that non-face cutting, but oh-so-close smooth shave. Harry's razors start at $15. For $15, you get a razor, you get three blades, and you either get the Harry's Shave Cream or the Harry's Foaming Gel. As an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the code GIST. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in my code GIST with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter coupon code GIST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. One of the key adaptations of man of the species Homo sapien giving us such a good advantage over the animals is the fact that we walk upright, we see the world, we stand, cognition developed and just flourished as a result. Any evolutionary biologist will tell you, well, the good ones, the ones who think the earth is more than 3,000 years old. And yet, when we're asked to do our best thinking, the people who pay us to do that, our employers, they give us a desk, they give us a chair, I guess if we're lucky, they ask us to think. It's good to be able to think on your feet. But so often we're not we're asked not to think on our feet, but from a seated position. So enter the standing desk because of evolution. But does it work? Is standing the thing that is going to give us the next evolutionary leap, if not above the animals, then above our competitors? Well, joining me now is Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game and Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She plays Is That Bullshit with us. Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. Standing desks. You ever use one? I do. I actually work at a standing desk. Oh, my God. That means, is this a gut thing or did you research it beforehand? Um, Are we asking you something that you've already personally done the research on? I have done some personal research on this. That said, part of the reason I use a standing desk is not due to the research as such, but due to the fact that I thought I'd give it a shot about a year or so ago, and I've really liked it. Yeah, and so in that case, even if it is the placebo effect, great. Okay, so I should note that we have done all of our interviews for Is That Bullshit in a seated position. We have indeed. And it's been a pretty successful little segment on the show, I think. I hope so. Okay, but you want to change it up for this one? Let's do it. All right, let's stand. 
All right. So I hope that the research is, would indicate that this is going to be a better interview. Or maybe I don't. I kind of like sitting down during interviews. Well, first of all, let's talk about why we're even studying this. Okay. What's so wrong with a sitting desk? Yeah. Right? The way people have measured that is our overall level of sedentariness. Is that the correct pronunciation? Sedentariness? Seatfulness. Seatfulness. Yes. That's right. Our overall level of seatfulness. So I think this whole standing desk frenzy actually emerged about a year ago Mm -hmm. when a huge study came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine that was one of the largest meta-analyses, if not the largest ever done, on the effect of sitting on our health outcomes. And what they say. So they reviewed tons of data over decades of work, and they found that your risk of overall mortality goes up the more you sit, and the risk of certain specific diseases like cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. Pleurisy? No, not pleurisy. Cancer. Pleurisy? Maybe pleurisy. Um, Type 2 diabetes. All of these things went up the more that you sat at your desk. But not necessarily pleurisy. Not necessarily. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get to pleurisy, Mike. Okay. I promise. Okay. I promise we'll get to pleurisy. And so basically what they found was that the more you sat, the younger you were probably going to die. Oh, my God. That's pretty bad. <laughs> because all our lives, we try to teach our kids to get into the good schools so they could get a job with the corner office. We should have just said tilling the fields. That's the way to go to live a nice long life. Right. And the thing that I think got people about this study, which actually not everyone quite read correctly, but some people did notice, is that this was irrespective of how fit you were otherwise. Mm-hmm. So people who you know went running twice a week, for instance, that didn't matter. What mattered was the total amount of time that they spent sitting. So, so you're saying the twice-a-week runners compared to twice-a-week runners, standers versus sitters, the standers would be in better position, but twice-a-week runner who sits at his desk versus General Slob who stands at work, the runners are still better off, right? That would be wonderful if we had that data. Ah. (laughs) That particular comparison wasn't done because at this point, they weren't actually comparing standing desks versus sitting desks. Mm -hmm. What they were comparing was they had people, depending on the study, the method of reporting changed, but basically it was how many hours a day do you sit? I'm going to right in my diary, now I'm sitting, now I stand up, now I'm sitting, now I stand up. It's become much more methodologically rigorous over time because now we have things like Fitbits, health trackers that can actually go beyond self-report. This meta-analysis indicates sitting bad, so standing must be better. So how better is it? Is the standing desk the balm for the sitting desk? What does this study show? So this study looked at 23 different studies and Unfortunately, the data here is spotty, as the people doing the meta-analysis are the first to to tell you, Mm -hmm. because not a lot of work has been done on standing versus treadmill desks. What they do find is that it seems that, first of all, treadmill desks better than standing desks, better for your cardiovascular health. They find that your good cholesterol goes up, your bad cholesterol goes down. With a standing desk, just your good cholesterol goes down up. There's no effect on your bad cholesterol. That's crazy. No other effects on cardiovascular health. They do find that you burn a few more calories, obviously. Sure. And on a standing desk, you burn even more calories. And people feel happier. They tend to like 
moving or standing. And I think they probably feel very self-righteous that they're doing this. I'm that, guessing that probably has that's part the thing. Of the I wonder effect. if I wonder if in 20 years when it's just derogore to have standing or treadmill desks in the office, if most of their benefit goes away because, you know, it's you're probably getting such endorphins one day we'll do an endorphins. Are they bullshit? But you're probably getting such a rush just mm-hmm. by being on the standing right. desk. I'm doing something for my health. Yeah. yeah. And some people find it harder to concentrate on a treadmill desk, at mm-hmm. least at first, that they can't do certain types of tasks. So there seems to be a little detrimental effect for different sorts of things because sometimes, you know, you just want to sit and think. And if you're trying to walk and make sure you're walking at a certain pace, that could really disrupt that flow. So some people don't like it for that reason. Okay. Those are your two baseline studies, but I'm about to put a whole wrench in our discussion because we've had a new analysis, a longitudinal study, come out from the Westminster cohort, one of the oldest and biggest longitudinal data samples of health we have. It's from England, from civil servants. Some people like Framingham. Some people like Westminster. Take your cohort. (laughs) The nurses, that's another good one. Is Framingham the nurses? Uh, Framingham Heart Study. Yeah, yeah. I like, I, you know, we all have our favorite cohorts. So this is Westminster 2. Okay. <laughs> um, and they say the sequel's studying. never as good as the original, but yeah. there are a lot so of they... unanswered questions and loose ends with Westminster 1. So they've been studying civil servants since 1985, and they just did their latest follow-up, and they had five different measures of sedentary activity, like sitting in front of the TV, how much time you spend sitting at work, those types of things, and they found that none of the measures had any correlation to risk of mortality or other disease in their samples. Interesting. They speculate that this might be because their sample is unusually mobile. They all live in London, so they take the subway, they stand on the subway, and they do have higher reported mobility than the average UK population. Right. Basically, that's just a speculation. They're saying maybe there's a protective factor. But what we do know is this other huge study of over 3,500 people that have been studied for a very long time has shown no correlation. And so how has it affected your standing at work, aside from this interview and our Well, so right there now? was another study that came out about standing desks. So yes. let's, <laughs> let's review that, which showed that that can be just as bad because it's not sitting versus standing so much as changing and moving. Ah. And so if you stand still, it's actually just as bad as sitting. And so you lose a lot of the benefits and you gain some problems like back problems. And so it seems this is the latest and, you know, we've we've already changed twice this year. So who knows that what you need to do is change your posture. So it's not Mm. sitting versus standing so much as changing stuff around. Even if you're sitting at your desk, fidget. So do the opposite of what your kindergarten teacher told you. What I would recommend is three reps on a lunging desk, mm-hmm. three reps on a squatting desk, yes. a few reps on a uh, Arnold desk, a uh, burpee desk, a uh, squat thrust desk. This is the way to do it, I think. I think An so, overhead too. press desk. Yes. 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 All right. So let's go to the final analysis. It's a two-part question. And part one is why people tuned in to find standing desks. Are they bullshit? Standing desks are 
sort of bullshit, sort of not. It depends on how you use them. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously better to be mobile, and you're probably more likely to be mobile if you're on a standing or a treadmill desk. But as with anything, it's how you use it. If I just stand at my standing desk, it's bullshit. It's not going to be any better for me than sitting at my sitting desk. But what about as treadmill desks? As far as desks? we know. Treadmill desks seem to be good, but you have to go at a reasonable pace so that it doesn't affect your productivity. And my last question is, you come into someone's office, they said, would you like a seat? Is it proper to ask, are you trying to kill me? I like to get up for people on the subway because I want them to die. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, there is good data that, you know, sitting for long periods of time is bad. That is absolutely not bullshit. But there seem to be other factors going on because we don't know, you know, we have this latest study of over 3,500 people that show absolutely no correlations, but we don't know if they're not controlling for something. They don't know either. They're trying to figure out why in the world this huge cohort has pretty solid data that shows absolutely no relationship. If I were giving my own recommendations, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, that those little alarms on your phone that tell you, hey, stand up and walk around for two minutes are probably a good idea. You can't go wrong with getting up every, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, every hour. Yeah. And just moving around a little. Yeah. I also like to fidget. I can't help it. Maria Konnikova is an author in good standing, the author of The Confidence Game and Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She comes in and plays Is That Bullshit with us, this time from a standing position. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much, Mike. Pizza's like sex, they say. Even when it's not good, it's pretty good. I don't know who said it. I think Phyllis Diller said that once on the old Mike Douglas show. But you know what? You know what a website's like? Poetry. When it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's terrible. It's, it's a turnoff. That's sort of like sex with pizza. All right, I'm a little off my point. I've strayed. What I want to emphasize is that a good website and a good experience can not only express what you want to express and yield good commerce and serve the customer and serve the audience, but a bad website is just so off-putting. And it just gets in the way of who you are, who you want to be, what you want to express online. Enter Squarespace. What Squarespace does is it helps you take your ideas that are in your head and put them on the web. Or gives you a way to edit out the bad ideas, like making analogies between pizza and sex when trying to sell the merits of Squarespace, an excellent website creation company. Websites created by Squarespace look professionally designed regardless of skill level. You don't need to know to code. They're intuitive. The tools are really easy to use, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now the spiel, a trump in my throat. Donald Trump has been described as clownish, buffoonish, a carnival barker, the orange interloper, the Teflon Don, a reality TV refugee turned drunken flamethrower, and a human-sized Oompa Loompa whose hair is a federally protected nesting site for the yellow-shouldered blackbird. But there is one thing that Donald Trump has been called that I don't agree with. Scary. You know, that sentiment, the Donald Trump thing was silly at first, then ridiculous, then shocking. But now it's getting scary, downright scary. Oh, stop. It is not. Screw up your courage and buck up. Lose your fears and grow a pair. Hey, you know, I noticed the advice around courage is really self-contradictory. 
Anyway, first point, huge point. Trump's not scary because Trump won't win. The betting markets have him at about seven to one to win the presidency. That is way too generous. His the highest negatives of any leading candidate ever. His unfavorable to favorable spread is 20 points, which is terrible. Donald Trump is like eyebrow piercing. Some people really like them. Most people are kind of appalled. Think of this. When Trump's biggest ask was to get you to watch Celebrity Apprentice, when they do the Q scores on him, which measures how much people know him, but how much they like and how much they don't like, he had a negative Q score of 45, positive Q score of 7. To put this in some perspective, Bill Cosby's negative Q is 52. He was very well known and very disliked. But my arguments actually don't rely on assuring you that he won't win. That's not why I'm saying you shouldn't be scared of him. It's fundamental, but that's not actually what my argument is. Because I also understand he might win. I can't argue with might. We're scared of things that could happen even more, studies show, than things that we're certain that will happen, even if those things are bad. We should be scared of Trump because America will be better off for what a Trump candidacy has wrought. He is inexpert in his lies. When other candidates tell lies, untruths we call them, for a respectable senator or governor, they know how to phrase it, they know how to massage it, they know how to spin the fact-checking afterwards. And those lies often work their way into the family of acceptable discourse. When Trump tells untruths about thousands of Muslims celebrating after 9-11 in New Jersey, the best, even the master, Rush Limbaugh, can muster is this. So here comes Trump saying that he saw Muslims cheer on 9-11. He adds tens or thousands there. The, the bottom line is that a lot of Americans are well aware that Muslims were cheering. Maybe not in New Jersey in great numbers, but around the world they were because we saw the video. I mean, not in New Jersey and not in great numbers, which was exactly the point of his claim. It's not a good lie, but it does take all the attention away from the other candidates. Candidates who frequently have policies that are worse than Trump's. Oh yeah, so that's another reason for you not to be scared of Trump. The alternatives are often just as bad or worse. Marco Rubio, seen as the most plausible mainstream candidate, has been caught in the hawk's talons on foreign policy. He has come out for thousands, won't say how many thousands, does say should be less than 50,000 boots on the ground. Actually, that'd be 100,000 because he says less than 50,000 troops to fight ISIS in the Middle East. Trump still says he just wants to bomb them. The majority of the Republican field says they'd tear up the Iran deal. Trump's kind of the adult in the room on this one. He says that is not how deals work. You can't do that. You can work with a bad contract. That's how he characterizes it. Just can't just rip it up. Trump says now that he's against abortion, but it's not going to animate him. And he seems pretty okay with gay marriage. Contrast that with Ben Carson, who also can't win, but is in second in Iowa. Even contrast that with Ted Cruz, who maybe can win. On taxes, Trump's plan will create a huge, huge hole in the deficit. But, you know, Carly Fiorina says she has a three-page tax code. Huh? Ted Cruz has that flat tax plus VAT tax thing. Yeah, I know the T in VAT tax is also tax. But anyway, that plan can add $16 trillion to the deficit over the next decade. So says Citizens for Tax Justice. Same group. Very liberal group, but it's the same group, looks at Trump's tax plan and says it would add a slightly less crippling $12 trillion. But all those other candidates know how to pitch their proposals so they get taken seriously. Trump knows how to fire Gary Busey. I mean, here he is. This is how, in his eyes, he proves his case that there were thousands of Muslims celebrating 9-11 in New Jersey. In Jersey City, within hours of two jet liners, Plowing into the World Trade Center, law enforcement authorities 
detained and questioned a number of people who were allegedly seen celebrating the attacks and holding tailgate style, tailgate, you know what that means? Tailgate, that means football games, Ohio State, thousands of people in parking lots, on roofs, tailgate is a lot of people. Tailgate is not two people. And holding tailgate style parties on rooftops while they watched the devastation on the other side of the river. Okay? Washington Post. Washington Post. You can drive a truck full of celebratory Muslims through the holes in that supposed vindication. And then you got to ask yourself, all right, this is bluster, this is silly, but what impact does it have on what his policies will be? Trump's stated positions are very much like what the other candidates' stated positions are. But the other candidates would probably pursue their policies with competence. So you'd have to worry about that if you don't like the policies. Trump makes statements like this Muslims on 9-11 thing or that China is in favor of the TPP. And yeah, those are things that just aren't true. They're just not going to happen. But you know what did happen? You know what is happening? Evolution and global warming. And almost every other Republican denies those things. No Republican candidate comes out and says, yeah, evolution's real. John Huntsman tried that four years ago, got killed for it. John Kasich plainly believes in evolution, but he argues with interviewers who put the question to him. Global warming. A couple of Republicans acknowledge it's real. Bush, Kasich, Christie. None of them want to do anything about it. Most Republicans just openly doubt the science. That is a lot worse in terms of policy prescriptions, or lack thereof, than believing that a thousand Muslims celebrated in New Jersey. Trump, by the way, is also a climate change denier, especially when it's cold. But the larger point is that climate change denial is rife in the party. It's an acceptable position. And if the Republicans nominate a plausible candidate, he or she will carry this lie with them into the general election and have a lot greater chance of acting on the lie than Trump will to act on an imagined halal tailgate 15 years ago. Donald Trump as the Republican candidate will also represent an excellent opportunity for Democrats to swing for the fences. Guess what? Hillary Clinton's going to win the presidency if Trump is her rival. And not only will she win, but she won't have to do all that tacking to the center contortion that you, as the typical liberal Trump scares me Democrat, hates. But even that I, as a totally Trump intrepid centrist, thinks saps her energy because self-triangulation is strangulation. Hell, if Trump's the nominee, Clinton can pick Elizabeth Warren as the running mate. There's also the chance that a Trump-failed candidacy will reform Republicans. Parties don't really need to reform until they get killed in an election. A huge defeat delivers them a comeuppance and makes them rethink their ways. A Trump candidacy could offer the impetus to root out and not to pander to the nativist, backward-looking Tea Party sentiment. Actually, I think the Republican establishment kind of wants to do this anyway, but I think a Trump flagration could teach the average Republican voter to temper his or her, his ire, and to put his faith in a less wackadoo leader. Maybe. A lot of those guys are buying the compelling Rush Limbaugh argument. The worst part of the I fear Trump now argument is its codicil. The, and I can't believe he's doing so well. It's scary. It's scary that so many of my fellow Americans support Trump. Um, have you not been paying attention? Yeah, he has almost a third of the votes of the self-identified likely Republican voters, which is to say around 12% of Americans. 
You didn't know that a big percentage of Americans are a little bit xenophobic, maybe kind of racist, and how do I say this? Stupid. You didn't know this? There was this lady named Sarah Palin. She was really pretty popular. Anyway, I say to you, Trumpophobe, you need to face your fear. You need to come out the other end better and stronger for it. President Trump, that's a boogeyman, meaning not at all soothing, but also not real. As an actual president once said, the only thing we have to fear is Ted Cruz himself. I'm paraphrasing. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has seen the footage of thousands of Kansas City residents on the Queens border celebrating Matt Harvey's ninth inning in the World Series. Disgusting. Executive producer Andy Bowers just knows that he saw thousands upon thousands of avowed Star Wars fans high-fiving the introduction of Jar Jar Binks as a character in The Phantom Menace. The gist, we have it on good authority, that whole arenas of Van Halen fans cheered the arrival of Sammy Hagar instead of David Lee Roth as Van Halen frontman. And I know the media don't want me to say it, but I'm saying it here, it's true. Mm-peru, de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>